Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, Cardio Nerds. Dan here. We are just totally stoked to share a case of amyloid cardiomyopathy with our growing Cardio Nerds family. As with our case-based episodes, we aim to review this important topic, and we will end with an inspiring flutter moment sent to us by one of our listeners. Hey, fellow Cardio Nerds. Amit here. We're going to party it up today with a full crew. In addition to Dan, myself, Corrine, and Heather, we will also have two very special guests to take today's case discussion to a whole new level. I am honored to introduce Dr. Yushin Wang, senior resident in the Ulcer Internal Medicine Residency at Hopkins. Yushin immigrated from China at age 12. She earned her bachelor's degrees in both liberal arts and biochemistry. She received her MD and PhD at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine doing groundbreaking basic science cancer research with Bert Vogelstein, culminating in several influential publications as well as patents for early cancer detection assays. When I worked with her during her internship, it became immediately clear that she is as skilled a clinician as she is a researcher. None of this takes away from her humility, sincerity, and fun-loving nature. Yushin will clearly be a leader in her field, but today, she is a cardio nerd at heart. Thanks, Ahmed. I'm so happy to be here. Ahmed, I don't think you know this, but I had the opportunity to be a senior resident on service when Yushin was crushing it and saving lives as a sub-I back in the day. I take zero credit for her amazing achievements, but I take tremendous pride in playing a small role in her incredible journey. And speaking of incredible people that we love and are so humbled to work with, we are honored to be joined by the great Dr. Jackie Zimmerman, MD, PhD, graduate of University of Alabama Medical School, Johns Hopkins Osler Internal Medicine, and Longcope Chief Resident, and noted oncology researcher and fellow, and one of the kindest people I know. Jackie and I have worked in the trenches together in intern year and residency, and we are incredibly close. When I was confronted with a family friend who had newly diagnosed lymphoma, I turned to her and she helped spearhead this young man's treatment plan. We are absolutely delighted to have her join us today as our oncology consultant. Dan, I couldn't agree more. I just have to say that I've taken my cues for humanism in medicine from Jackie, the person who wheels her patients to the hospital chapel for spiritual healing, paints their toenails to normalize the patient's illness experience, and throws birthday parties with balloons and cheers to brighten their day. Thanks, friends. So happy to be here today. Jackie, thanks again. It's really a treat to have you here. Today, Postcall Yushuan brings us a case of nuanced heart failure to spark an animated discussion of the diagnosis and management of cardiac amyloid. Shout out to Dr. Andrew Perry, cardiology fellow at Washington University and his amazing AP Cardiology podcast. We highly recommend you check out his show. Specifically, he has two phenomenal episodes on cardiac amyloid where he interviews Dr. Rick Ruberg and Dr. Dan Lenahan. We will post the links of these episodes in our show notes. Those episodes perfectly complement today's case discussion like an eight cheese with rustic wine. <laughs> <laughs> and remember, folks, this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. This case you are about to hear is 100% HIPAA compliant. Some details were changed to protect privacy, but out of respect for the patient, the rest is told exactly as it occurred. Hey, Queen Yush. How'd your call go? 
Oh, hi. I actually got some really interesting emissions overnight. Okay, good. I'm glad it wasn't too bad. Let's sign you out and get you home. What's going on with your patients? Actually, I really like to get your take on this patient. I admit it with shortness of breath. I'm pretty sure this is legit new onset heart failure. And to get the ball rolling, I already paid the cardio nerds. Awesome. I love working with the cardio nerds. Their excitement about medicine is so infectious. Yeah, they are. Anyhow, let me start telling you about her. So this is an 80-year-old woman coming in with three weeks of dyspnea, orthopnea, new ankle edema, and weight gain. Dan speaking. Cardio nerds at your service, ready to save one myocyte at a time. Hey, Dan and Amit. I'm here with Yushuan discussing one of her admissions and would love to hear your thoughts about new onset heart failure. One of our favorite topics. Yushuan, hope you had a good call. I'm sure you crushed it as usual. Tell us what's going on. Thanks, Amit. Yes, tonight was great. So much amazing medicine. I'm really excited to talk about this case with you. We admitted an 80-year-old woman with a history of polymyositis on immunosuppression, MGUS, aka monoclonal gammopathy of undetermined significance, and hypertension, who is presenting with subacute progressive dyspnea, orthopnea, and bilateral lower extremity edema. She's on prednisone, dapsone, and losartan. Her mom has some unknown heart disease due to her weakness from polymyositis. She lives in an assisted living facility. She quit smoking 40 years ago, drinks alcohol rarely, and does not use illicit drugs. Hmm, definitely not your run-of-the-mill medical history. Her polymyositis raises the question of respiratory muscle weakness causing restrictive lung disease, possibly with secondary group 3 pulmonary hypertension. This could cause RV failure and leg edema. Then again, there is the possibility of interstitial lung disease if her polymyositis is actually misclassified antisynthetase syndrome, or this could be MGUS that progressed to multiple myeloma or amyloidosis, both of which can have multisystemic manifestations. But common things being common, hypertensive heart disease is a leading cause of heart failure. Heather, I'm just like typing all this into my note right now for my consult note, and uh, you're just fantastic. This is just incredibly helpful. Oh, thanks, Dan. Anyhow, another fun fact to add. Her orthopnea could be a clue to heart failure, but diaphragmatic weakness can also manifest as an orthopnea since the diaphragm loses the help of gravity when you lie down, causing shortness of breath. Did her exam clarify things, Yushuan? Yeah, let me tell you about her exam. She was a febrile, heart rate 84, blood pressure 125 over 72, respiratory rate 14, and satting 93% on room air. Overall, she was comfortable appearing and maintaining well. She had a 3 out of 6 systolic murmur, lattice at the right upper sternal border, JVP elevated at about 10 centimeters of water above the right atrium. Lung exam had coarse crackles at the basis, and legs are warm with 1 plus putting edema to the knees bilaterally. Her neuro exam was quite impressive with clearly baseline proximal greater than distal extremity weakness. Great discussion so far. I'm feeling about as useful as an appendix with Heather and Yushin on the case. I do agree this really is sounding more and more like heart failure. Yushin's superb exam indicates both left and right-sided fluid overload with normal perfusion. Given her past medical history, I'd really be interested in hearing her labs. Yeah, let me tell you about her labs. Her hemoglobin is within her baseline at 9.8, so we can't blame anemia for her dyspnea or a new high-output heart failure. 
Renal function is normal with a creatinine of 0.4, which is also at her baseline. It probably rides low due to her polymyositis, causing a low functional muscle mass. With regards to her polymyositis, markers of muscle injury are similar to prior with slightly elevated AST, ALT, LDH, CK, and aldolase. The five key muscle enzymes. EKG is over there. Okay, let me grab this EKG, just like ACS rounds. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the EKG shows normal sinus rhythm. Um, it's left axis deviated with a left anterior fascicular block, left ventricular hypertrophy, poor R wave progression, and nonspecific ST changes. I've also pulled up the chest x-ray. It looks like a well-expanded film with bilateral hilar congestion. There isn't any asymmetric diaphragmatic elevation. I'd say that based on her symptoms, exam, and labs, we can be quite certain she has new onset heart failure. It sure sounds like a great case for the cardio nerds. Friends, can you help us work through new onset heart failure? Team, yes, we can, but I'm worried about this patient. But you guys did a terrific job laying out this cardiovascular history. Yushuan and Heather, we love receiving consults. There's so much to dissect here. As we've highlighted in prior episodes, when it comes to heart failure etiologies, you gotta think ischemia, hypertension, and valvular disease, as these are among the most common causes of heart failure. But another way to look at new onset heart failure is the five, the five failures. 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 And you get echoed that. Failure number one, coronary failure. Coronary artery disease, acute and chronic, can both lead to LV dysfunction. Two, ventricular failure, non-ischemic cardiomyopathy, infiltrative (laughs) diseases, and other things like that that cause pump failure. But don't forget, the RV also needs to pump. So RV failure can also be an important cause of heart failure. Number three, valvular failure, which is stenosis and regurgitations. Four, electrical failure, bradycardias, or chronic RV pacing, atrial fibrillation, etc. And five, pericardial failure. Remember, the pericardium is supposed to be a smooth bag of lube. Constrictive pericarditis, which I cannot wait to talk about in a future episode, is sac failure. And again, will cause you to have symptoms of congestive heart failure. I love that you already ordered an echocardiogram because it will really help parse through the etiologies. It will tease out the five different failures for sure. I love that approach, Dan. So systematic. And I wouldn't expect anything less from you. We can think of these as the cardiac systems for an assessment and plan. Coronary, ventricular, valvular, electrical, and pericardial. A great way to approach a thorough evaluation. Speaking of evaluation, if a picture is worth a thousand words, then a good echo study in the right hands is an encyclopedia. Let's see if Kareen's had a chance to review that echo. Ring, 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 ring. Hey, cardio nerds. Kareen, Dan, Heather, Yushin, and I are discussing a case of new onset heart failure admitted last night to Bet 12, wondering if you could review the echo with us. I would love to. Okay, let me pull it up. Oof, now that's a thick LV. What's with you guys always calling about these thick LVs? Didn't we discuss that HCM case last time? This is certainly not asymmetric hypertrophy like the last one. There's a small LV cavity with concentric LVH, septal thickness 1.65 centimeters, posterior wall 1.5 centimeters, so pretty similar. LV function is hyperdynamic with an EF of about 70%, grade 2 diastolic dysfunction, 
The muscle does have that granular sparkling pattern, which can be seen in infiltrative diseases, although we couldn't really hang our hat on that alone. There are other features to suggest an infiltrative process, including thickening of the RV walls, the interatrial septum, and the mitral and tricuspid valves. There's also biatrial enlargement and a small pericardial effusion. Friends, this is really suggestive of an infiltrative cardiomyopathy. That's really interesting, Corinne. What a fantastic read. Thank you for going so much in depth. Another echocardiographer could just have read this study as preserved EF with diastolic dysfunction, giving our patient that all too common diagnosis of HEF-PEF, aka heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, not otherwise specified. Now, you've all heard my HEF-PEF rant before, but it's worth repeating that quote-unquote HEF-PEF is not a diagnosis, but rather a description of the clinical syndrome. You still need to be a diagnostician and delve deeper into the etiology. So true, Amit. Now, most HEF-PEF will be from myocardial stiffening from aging, hypertension, diabetes, and a variety of other poorly understood mechanisms. But other causes of diastolic dysfunction include ischemia, aortic stenosis, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, infiltrative diseases, fibroplastic diseases like endomyocardial fibrosis. Failing to evaluate these secondary causes of HEFPEF does a major disservice to our patients. Remember, HEFPEF is a diagnosis of exclusion. Another thing that grinds my gears is when a patient is labeled HEFPEF, but they also happen to have severe mitral regurgitation. Let me explain this a little bit more because it grinds my gears so much. Imagine you are a ventricle. It's time for systole. You're weak, but you give it your all. You squeeze. Some blood goes out the aortic valve as it should, but a lot of blood goes out the mitral valve, which has severe regurgitation for some reason or another. You pat yourself on the back. The overall volume that you have ejected is reasonable, and your ejection fraction looks reasonable. You breathe. Now some surgeon or interventional cardiologist fixes or replaces your mitral valve. It's now diastole. You fill through that spanking good-as-new mitral valve, and now it's systole. You're weak but you squeeze. But wait, the blood goes out the aortic valve, but no longer goes out the mitral valve. You can no longer get that same volume out of the left ventricle because you have no more mitral regurgitation. Your starting volumes are higher and your ending volumes are higher. Hence, your ejection fracture will be lower than it was before your valve repair or replacement. And your true systolic dysfunction is now captured by that reduction in ejection fracture. Ah, I see. Okay, so basically, for a patient with severe mitral regurgitation, even if the ejection fraction is preserved or slightly low, I need to think of this left ventricle as a dysfunctional ventricle rather than HEF-PEF and may not want to slam on a bunch of negative inotropic agents. Heather, that is exactly right. For example, a patient like this who comes in with acute to compensate a heart failure, but also with atrial fibrillation and rapid ventricular response, may not be served well with rapid increases in beta blocker therapy for rate reduction, and you may want to consider other agents or a rhythm control strategy if clinically appropriate. Dan, what a great example. I feel like we see this all the time. It's also worth mentioning what's not on the list of quote-unquote HEFPEF. Mitral valve disease, pulmonary hypertension, COPD, RV failure, and so many other things that get lumped into HEF-PEF. HEF-PEF is a state that causes increased LV stiffness or decreased compliance, resulting in heart failure. Now, heart failure is, of course, when the heart can't meet the metabolic demands of the body or can only do so with elevated filling pressures. So hemodynamically, HEF-PEF is an elevated LV-EDP, or 
LV filling pressure at rest or with exercise in the context of a preserved ejection fraction above 50%. In the end, it is a clinical diagnosis, which is why it ends up being so heterogeneous in practice. Guys, I am all about this HEFPEF detour, but I have something super exciting to add. It looks like we also have strain imaging on this study. And drum roll. (laughs) (laughs) There's reduced global longitudinal strain at negative 10 with apical sparing. A clear bullseye pattern. Strain imaging? Bullseye pattern? I'm sorry, but what does that all mean in English? Great question. Let me explain further. So strain imaging is based on the principle that myocardial cells not only contract in a radial direction, but also in a circumferential and longitudinal direction, almost like the ringing of a towel, if you can imagine. Strain imaging uses speckle tracking to track two spots or speckles moving through multiple frames in systole. The ultrasound software checks to see if those speckles move closer together, signifying a meaningful deformation, or keep the same distance, suggesting a lack of deformation or contraction of the muscle. Because we want those two speckles to move closer together, strain is reported as a negative number. The more negative the number, the better the regional contraction. So for example, negative 20 is better than negative 10. Ah, I see. So the more negative the strain, the better the contractility of that particular segment of the heart, and you may want to track the strain pattern for a particular patient over time. Exactly, Heather. Now, strain can really be helpful for two reasons. One, it's more sensitive than the normal 2D echo for finding global and regional abnormalities. And two, it can show different patterns of myocardial injury or damage really nicely. Different cardiac conditions can affect different regions differently, and the resulting strain patterns are stereotypical for that disease entity. So for example, coronary artery disease will tend to have abnormalities in strain that fit vascular territories that are ischemic or infarcted. Patients with Febreze disease often have reduced strain in the basal infralateral region. Hypertrophic cardiomyopathy may show reduced strain in the area of abnormal hypertrophy. Conversely, the classic strain pattern in cardiac amyloid is a global reduction in longitudinal strain, but with apical sparing, such that the base and mid-segments are crummy, while the apex is relatively preserved. That's really helpful to know. I'll be paying attention to strain more often. It's so helpful for our patient since she has both a history of MGUS and hypertension, and so differentiating between cardiac amyloid and hypertensive heart disease is key for her. In the future, if I'm suspecting cardiac amyloid, I'll ask for strain imaging when I order an echo. Team, this is such a great opportunity to talk about cardiac amyloid as it bubbles up higher and higher in our differential diagnosis for Yushin's patient. How about we take a moment to step back and talk about cardiac amyloid? So glad that we have an opportunity to talk about cardiac amyloid. It's really important to always keep this on the back burner and think about it early for a few different reasons. One, it overlaps with many other diseases. Two, it's often diagnosed late because it can be confused with HEFPEF and other conditions. Three, delayed diagnosis can be deadly. And four, cardiac amyloid is treatable, so it's definitely something we want to catch and we want to catch it early. 
The last point cannot be stressed enough. Until recently, a diagnosis of cardiac amyloid relegated our patients to supportive heart failure measures and eventually palliative care. Thankfully, now we have novel and effective treatment strategies, especially when combined with early diagnosis made possible with advances in imaging. This is such a great discussion. With my interest in oncology, this area of overlap is even more relevant. A quick pathophysiology refresher. Amyloid doses occurs when abnormal proteins misfold and deposit in tissues as beta-pleated sheets, giving the appearance of an amorphous proteinaceous material. This deposition not only disrupts the local macroarchitecture, but is also directly toxic to cells. The target organs, whether the heart, kidneys, brain, nerves, liver, or really any organ, are devastated. Exactly. There are lots of proteins that can misfold and deposit as amyloid in different tissues. The most common ones that gunk up the heart are abnormal light chains causing AL amyloidosis, so AL, L for light chains, and transthyretin, which is what we call ATTR amyloidosis. Now, ATTR can be wild-type or mutant variants, but both cause ATTR amyloidosis. Does anyone know what the TTR protein does? Yes, actually. It's aptly named since transthyretin is the protein that carries thyroid hormone in the blood. It also carries retinol binding protein and is also known as prealbumin. It's also made in the liver. Paging Dr. Nodal. Paging Dr. Nodal. <laughs> nerd alert. Nerd alert. Nerd alert. Well said, Heather. You, you were probably chosen for medical jeopardy every time. All right. I'll add, unlike ATTR amyloidosis, AL, cardiac amyloid, occurs as a result of plasma cell dyscrasia, where a monoclonal plasma cell population just churns out this hashtag nasty protein. That was phenomenal, Heather and Dan. It's also worth mentioning that TTR is a 127 amino acid protein that forms a tetramer in the blood. Thank you, Dr. Google. <laughs> this tetramer, made up of four identical TTR proteins, is a functional unit that carries around the thyroid hormone or retinal binding protein. This tetramer is the good guy and does not form amyloid. But if and when the tetramer disintegrates into its individual monomeric proteins, they can further denature and become amyloidogenic depositing as amyloid gunk in the heart and other tissues, causing stiffness and dysfunction. Now, ATTR, as Dan said, comes in two forms. Number one, wild-type ATTR cardiac amyloid, which occurs with accumulation over time of normal ATTR protein occurring almost exclusively in older age with a male predominance. Now, why it starts to deposit over time is anyone's guess, but the average age of diagnosis is 74, with a rising prevalence with aging in almost 40% in those above the age of 95 years. So number one was the wild-type ATTR amyloid. Number two is the mutant ATTR, which is heritable with over 80 amyloidogenic mutations described, in which a single amino acid mutation destabilizes that tetramer. The age of onset, natural history, and phenotype are closely linked with a specific mutation. The different phenotypes include neuropathy predominant, where predominantly the nerves are involved, cardiac predominant, where you guessed it, predominantly the heart is involved, and mixed phenotypes. 
It's actually really interesting how the phenotype is specific to the mutation. For an example, V122I, or valine to isoleucine substitution at the 122nd amino acid position, causes cardiac amyloid with minimal neuropathy. It's the most common in the U.S., seen in 3-4% of African Americans. On the other hand, T60 to A mutation, allene for threonine substitution at amino acid 60, is the second most common in the U.S., seen in those with Irish descent and causes a mixed cardiomyopathy and neuropathy phenotype. Meanwhile, the V30M mutation causes a prototypical HATTR polyneuropathy. The reality is we've probably all seen a cardiac amyloid patient misdiagnosed as hypertensive heart disease or FPEF-NOS. It occurs far more commonly than was once thought in up to 15% of older patients admitted with heart failure. The first step is to maintain a high index of suspicion for cardiac amyloid. I agree. We never want to miss a disease that is present, but at the same time, we also can't be chasing quote-unquote zebras all the time and perform cardiac biopsies on every FPEF patient. Thinking about the pathophysiology of amyloid really helps me try and identify patients with this entity. Just taking a step back, in most kinds of left ventricular heart failure, the congestion is due to elevated left ventricular filling pressures. In HEFPEF, this is very true as well. There is often an inability for the ventricle to relax adequately at rest or with exercise. This causes decreased LV filling and higher LV pressures leading to venous congestion, which leads to renal vascular engorgement, leading to decreased renal flow, leading to the kidneys thinking that they're not seeing any juice, leading to water retention, leading to higher venous return, leading to higher left ventricular filling pressures, and round and round we go in the vicious cycle of HEFPEF. What makes amyloid a different kind of beast is not only do we have congestion as a problem, but now that we have all this gunk in the trunk, hashtag nasty protein, we end up having what was supposed to be a lovely orchestra of myocytes dancing with each beat, contracting and forcing blood out of that ventricle. We have now have a super stiff cardboard box. It's not going to fill and it's not going to pump. Small volumes in, small volumes out, and a high filling pressure to boot. This creates a very different phenotype than regular HEFPEF. As with aortic stenosis and hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, the stiff amyloid heart is a structural problem that leads to very important hemodynamic consequences. That's right, Dan. And once again, amyloid is another example where understanding the pathophysiology helps keep our clinical antennae up and ready to spot the wolf amongst that HEFPEF sheep. When approached with a patient with a new diagnosis of HEFPEF, consider amyloid and look for the gunk in two places. Number one, the heart, and number two, the body. For gunk in the heart, the echo is incredibly helpful. Remember, amyloid is nasty and just gets itself everywhere. It affects all the cardiac systems, which are... Coronary. Ventricular. Valvular. Electrical. And last but not least, pericardial. Yes, yes, yes! coronary, ventricular, valvular, electrical, and pericardial. Corrine's description of our patient's echo really hammers in how all these tissues are affected. Thick LV, thick RV, thick interatrial septum, thick atrioventricular valves, diastolic dysfunction, granular sparkling appearance of muscle, and small pericardial effusion, biatrial enlargement, and a characteristic strain pattern showing reduced global longitudinal strain with apical sparing. Pro tip, when it comes to LVH, AL amyloid tends to occur concentrically, whereas 
the ATTR amyloid deposition may be asymmetric, occasionally being confused with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. As we discussed in episode number three, cardiac amyloid is an important HCM phenocopy. Now, a very young patient with asymmetric hypertrophy is unlikely to have ATTR amyloidosis and is more likely to have true HCM or a phenocopy of HCM such as a storage disorder, like that patient with Dannon disease I saw last week. Interestingly, patients with AL cardiac amyloid develop symptoms earlier in their course, classically with a lesser degree of hypertrophy. This is probably due to direct cardiotoxicity of the AL amyloid. This underlines the fact that cardiac amyloid is not just an infiltrative disease, but a toxic infiltrative cardiomyopathy. Dern straight. This anatomical schmutz leads to the hemodynamic consequences of cardiac amyloid. The diastolic dysfunction in amyloid can range from what is mild dysfunction all the way to a raging cardboard box stiffness, which results in restrictive physiology. If there is enough protein, systolic dysfunction can also occur, and there may not be enough juice ejecting out of that left ventricle to the poor brain and other organs. These patients may present with bad congestion, but also poor forward flow that is manifested in normal blood pressures despite prior histories of hypertension and intolerance to neurohormonal blockade, such as beta blockers, ACE inhibitors, ARBs, etc. Again, remember, from the left ventricle perspective, poor inflow and poor outflow. Lowering systemic vascular resistance in such patients is not going to translate into more flow, but rather hypotension, acute kidney injuries, and altered mentation. This can be a real challenge with diuresing these patients. These are probably the reasons why Beta blockers, ACE inhibitors, ARBs, ARNIs, MRAs, all of those agents that are so wonderful in heart failure with reduced ejection fraction do not show any benefit in burnt out amyloid as they do in other types of systolic heart failure. So quote unquote cured hypertension in a patient with HEFPEF is a very important clue. Conversely, if a patient is super hypertensive, it's unlikely that they have advanced cardiac amyloid. Speaking of restrictive physiology with poor inflow and outflow, there is a huge overlap between TTR cardiac amyloid and low-flow, low-gradient AS. Both tend to develop in the elderly, so there's an epidemiologic overlap, and about 15% of TAVR patients have ATTR cardiac amyloid, with about 15% of ATTR cardiac amyloid patients having moderate to severe AS. Not surprisingly, when both aortic stenosis and TTR cardiac amyloid occur together, you often end up with low-flow, low-gradient AS because of the stiff heart's restrictive physiology and resulting low stroke volume index. Remember from episode 1, the aortic stenosis case discussion, that paradoxical low-flow, low-gradient AS occurs with an aortic valve area less than 1 cm squared, a peak velocity of less than 4 meters per second, and a mean gradient of less than 40 millimeters of mercury with preserved ejection fraction and stroke volume index of less than 35 millimeters per meter squared. So, friends, consider a diagnosis of wild-type ATTR cardiac amyloid in patients with paradoxical low-flow, low-gradient AS. Fantastic, Pearl-Karine. On blood work, you see a chronic troponin elevation that usually remains flat as opposed to acute coronary syndromes where the markers peak and come back down. This is due to amyloid invasion into the vasculature causing microvascular ischemia. Also, when assessing gunk in the heart, take a look at the EKG, which really provides a lot of insight. 
In amyloid, the EKG may show low voltage, a pseudo-infarct pattern with Q waves in the early precordial leads that may mimic an anteroceptal MI, and atrial fibrillation from chronically high atrial pressures. Gunk in the conduction system can cause premature advanced conduction disease with AV node and bundle branch blocks. Don't forget that amyloid is on the differential diagnosis of complete heart block. An important pearl is that conduction system disease and arrhythmias may occur years before the onset of heart failure, so you've got to keep a high index of suspicion. Okay, got it. Thinking about amyloid as gunk really makes sense why patients with amyloid have low voltage on EKG. In general, when all the limb leads have QRS amplitude less than 5 millimeters and or all the precordial leads are less than 10 millimeters, aka they meet low voltage criteria, then I'm thinking of two things. Either one, the heart isn't making much electricity, or two, there's a lot of distance from the heart to the leads. The heart doesn't make much electricity with large areas of infarction, advanced non-ischemic cardiomyopathy, and infiltrative disease, such as amyloid. Alternatively, there could be enough electricity, but the leads slash EKG is not sensing it because of increased distance between the heart and the leads themselves, which can be from things like extra subcutaneous tissue in obesity, extra air in the lungs with COPD, or fluid surrounding the heart in a pericardial effusion. Wow, this is totally coming together. In patients with heart failure, but a preserved ejection fraction, be on the lookout for cardiac clues that point to amyloid, such as clinical congestion and evidence of poor forward flow, cured hypertension, inability to tolerate medications such as beta blockers, echo evidence of chamber and valvular thickening, a both eye strain pattern, ECG with low voltage, conduction abnormalities, atrial arrhythmias, pericardial effusion, and chronically elevated troponin from chronic macrovascular ischemia. It really affects all the cardiac systems, coronary, ventricular, valvular, electrical, and pericardio. Boom! <laughs> well said, Yushuan. Back to building our suspicion for cardiac amyloid. First, we'll look for clinical clues to amyloid gunk in the heart, which occurs regardless of the type of amyloid that's depositing, be it AL or ATTR. Second, we will hunt for extra cardiac amyloid manifestations, which are specific to the amyloid protein. What might be some clinical features to clue you in? For this, I usually swap out my fancy dancy cardio nerd hat for my hashtag internist first hat. Well, AL amyloid is a multi-systemic disease with widespread Heck distribution. Yeah. That's why it's known as a gray mimicker. Some clues include paraorbital purpura due to vascular fragility, macroglossia, nephrotic syndrome, neuropathy, and bilateral carpal syndrome, which are some classic associations. But really, any organ can be affected, so they might have liver amyloid, gut amyloid, and the list goes on. The kidneys are the most commonly affected organ. The heart is the second most common, but the most important for prognosis. Can I get an amen? Amen. When it comes to AL, multi-systemic is right. Think AL. All over the place, y'all. AL amyloidosis. Moving on. ATTR is more selective with victim organs of choice, with a special affinity for the heart and the nerves. And remember, for mutant TTR, 
different mutant TTR proteins have their own tissue preferences. So unexplained peripheral or autonomic neuropathy can be a clue for amyloidosis, occurring more commonly with hereditary TTR versus wild-type TTR, or AL. Interestingly, ATTR also loves the musculoskeletal system, so always think of this when you have a heart failure patient with a history of one, bilateral carpal tunnel syndrome, which is more common with ATTR over AL amyloid, and often predates cardiac amyloid. Doctors Brett Sperry and Mazen Hanna really hammered this when their team studied pathology from 98 patients undergoing carpal tunnel release surgery at Cleveland Clinic, finding that 10% had amyloid deposits. Number two, lumbar spinal stenosis due to infiltration of ligamentum flavum. And three, spontaneous bicep tendon rupture, which may happen in one-third of patients with wild-type ATTR cardiomyopathy. Guys, I know Corrine said that the echo is suggestive of cardiac amyloid, but doesn't the EKG argue against it? We said that the classic EKG in cardiac amyloid is low voltage with a pseudo-infarct pattern, and often with atrial fibrillation since it's so common in cardiac amyloid. But our patient had left ventricular hypertrophy on EKG, not low volts. What a great observation, Heather. The EKG certainly gives me pause, but over the years I've learned that in medicine there are no absolutes. While the typical EKG pattern are clues, these classic findings may only be seen in half of patients with true cardiac amyloid. In fact, 10% of cardiac amyloid cases may actually have LVH on the EKG. A more nuanced question here is to ask whether the degree of hypertrophy on echo is out of proportion to the EKG voltage. While it's hard to quantify this, my gestalt here is that her EKG doesn't come close to doing justice to the massive, monstrous hypertrophy on echo. A septum of almost 1.7 centimeters is very unlikely to come from hypertension alone. Yeah, this ventricle on echo, as Kareem described, looks super beefy, but if this was legit hypertensive left ventricular hypertrophy or hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, those ECG QRS spikes would be popping off the paper. So with our patient's history of AMGUS and echo findings, we already have a really high suspicion for AL cardiac amyloid. Where do we go from here? Money, money, money! That's the money question. And the answer is different now than it was a decade ago. Advances in non-invasive imaging really improved our diagnostic capability and the diagnostic algorithm reflects the fact that over 90% of cardiac amyloid is either from AL or from ATTR. This algorithm is super duper simple. Let's lay it out. Step one, build a case for cardiac amyloidosis using our two-pronged investigation, cardiac gunk and body gunk. We have a strong case for cardiac amyloid here, so we can check this off and move on to step two. Step two is what kind of gunk do you have? We simply confirm, do we have AL or do we have TTR? To look for AL amyloid, you check your gammopathy labs. As our budding oncologist, Yushuan, what would you send? Okay, Dan. So I ordered serum kappa lambda free chain ratio, serum protein electrophoresis or SPEP, urine protein electrophoresis, or UPEP, and both serum and urine immunofixations. Right on! The key here is that SPEP alone is insufficient and therefore not enough to exclude the diagnosis of AL amyloid. Serum or urine protein electrophoresis looks at how the proteins separate on electrophoresis and is needed to quantify any monoclonal band. But 
it is not sensitive enough to exclude a plasma cell dyscrasia. In immunofixation, on the other hand, you use electrophoresis to separate the proteins in different lanes and then use specific monoclonal antibodies to identify the monoclonal band to differentiate between the different light chains and heavy chains. So not only does it give you the identity of the monoclonal protein, but it also is far more sensitive than electrophoresis alone. The serum-free light chain assay then allows you to quantify the circulating kappa and lambda light chains, and the kappa-lambda ratio helps compare the relative amounts because a monoclonal plasma population will churn out either excess lambda or kappa light chains, so the ratio will be off. Therefore, the serum-free light chain and the serum or urine immunofixation are the ones you want to make sure you get. If these gammopathy labs are negative, then you look for a TTR amyloid which you can do with special imaging. Another shout out to my imaging people. This time, not cardiac MRI, but it's time to get nuclear with a technetium-99 pyrophosphate scan. It's long been known that technetium-99 labeled diphosphonate compounds have an affinity towards amyloid deposits and historically have been used for bone scans. While the reason for their attraction to amyloid is not clear, we use this to our advantage. You won't believe this, but technetium-99 labeled pyrophosphate, aka PYP, binds to amyloid deposits in the heart. Now, interestingly, it will bind so strongly to ATTR specifically, kind of like peanut butter and jelly. Now, PYP does not like AL amyloid as much as it likes ATTR. We can use this to our advantage. So after an injection of T99 PYP, we image the patient with a SPECT scan to capture that radiation decay. With either wild type or mutant ATTR cardiac amyloid, the heart lights up like Times Square on New Year's Eve. We compare the tracer uptake in the heart to bone uptake of the ribs on a semi-quantitative scale from grade zero, indicating no cardiac uptake, all the way to grade three, when the heart lights up more than the bone. Additionally, comparing the heart to the contralateral chest helps differentiate ATTR cardiac amyloid from AL cardiac amyloid when the ratio is above 1.5. These nuclear scans are a total game changer. When there's clinical suspicion for cardiac amyloid and gammopathy labs are negative for a monoclonal protein, the PYP nuclear scan showing grade 2 to 3 uptake is nearly 100% specific for ATTR cardiac amyloid. You can be so certain of the diagnosis that the gold standard endomyocardial biopsy may not be necessary in the right context. Take that to the bank. Chinka, chinka, ching. Money, 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 money. <laughs> that, was, that was so unexpected. <laughs> After checking for serum-free light chains and the PYP scan, there are only a handful of possibilities. A, their serum-free light chains are abnormal, but the PYP scan is negative. In this case, Yushuan. This combination makes AL cardiac amyloid very likely. I like to get a bone marrow biopsy to verify the plasma cell dyscrasia in prep for chemotherapy. Perfect. Option B, the serum-free light chains are normal, but the PYP scan has grade two or three uptake, so it's positive. Heather. This sounds like ATTR cardiac amyloid apparently with almost 100% specificity. I would want to do genetic testing to differentiate wild type from mutant. Perfect. Now, option C, a little bit more tricky. If the serum-free light chains are abnormal and the PYP scan is positive, then, well, you could consider ATTR with an unrelated MGUS. And actually, one in four patients with ATTR cardiac amyloid may actually have an unrelated MGUS. 
but really you should get an endomyocardial biopsy to reconcile this because you definitely would want to manage ATTR cardiac amyloid when they also have a concurrent AL cardiac amyloid. Option D is when both are negative, the serum-free light chains and the PYP scan. In this setting, it's very unlikely to be cardiac amyloid. So it's either time to go back to the drawing board and look for another cause of a thick and stiff heart, or consider the rare alternative amyloid proteins that can deposit in the heart like serum amyloid A, which is secondary amyloidosis from chronic inflammatory states. That was a great breakdown of the non-invasive diagnostic algorithm. We will certainly add this to our show schematic at www.cardionerds.com. When in doubt, remember that endomyocardial biopsy is really the gold standard. Unlike sarcoidosis, which is a patchy disease, in amyloidosis, the infiltration is diffuse, and so diagnostic yield of a biopsy is much greater. Just sink in those biotome teeth and grab. But not too much. Don't perf the RV. That is never a good idea. Hey guys, we just got some laughs back. So it looks like troponin I levels are pretty flat at 0.15, 0.12, 0.14. The pro-BMP though is elevated at 2,300. UA is negative for protein, but the protein-creatinine ratio is at 0.28. And wow, the serum-free light chain kappa lambda ratio is very low at 0.05 with kappa 12.6. Lambda 257.6, and there's an AMP spike measuring 1.83 grams per deciliter. The immunofixation also identifies it as an IgG lambda. Incredible! This really hammers in our clinical suspicion for AL cardiac amyloid, but does not confirm it. This so far is just consistent with her known MGUS. While you can make the diagnosis of ATTR cardiac amyloid, with a positive PYP scan, you never make the diagnosis of AL amyloid without pathology go under the microscope. Not necessarily from the heart, it could be from another tissue. As they say, if cancer's the answer, tissue is the issue. They do say that. Amen. (laughs) (laughs) So, to review where we are, we have built our clinical suspicion for cardiac amyloid, and given her history of MGUS and positive gammopathy labs, we really think this will turn out to be AL amyloid rather than TTR. Yes, at this point, we really should confirm the presence of AL amyloid tissue deposition with a bone marrow biopsy, other non-cardiac biopsy, or a cardiac biopsy. If this comes up dry, we can always go back and get a PYP scan to look for ATTR amyloidosis. So I touch base with our star oncology consultant and former Long Cove chief resident, Dr. Jackie Zimmerman. Dun 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 Guys, I don't have anything that exciting to say. Just making sure we're finished. Dr. Zimmerman is really interested in how the case is unfolding. Hey, cardio nerds. Yushuan already filled me in, and I totally agree that things are very concerning for AL cardiac amyloidosis. I took the liberty of consenting your patient and getting a bone marrow biopsy, and I'm heading to the pathology lab to read the slides. I'd love to share my approach with you to plasma cell dyscrasias. Jackie, we would love to learn your approach. Great. So stepping back, plasma cell dyscrasias are disorders of monoclonal plasma cells gone berserk. So, by definition, they're cancers. There are three important ones which exist on a scale of severity. 
MGUS, which you guys have already alluded to, smoldering myeloma, and multiple myeloma. To distinguish among them, I start by asking myself three questions. Number one, is there evidence of a monoclonal population? Simply, is there an M spike? Yes or no? Number two, if the answer is yes, then you next ask if there is a high load. That is, are there greater than 10% clonal plasma cells on bone marrow biopsy and or an M spike that's greater than 3 grams per deciliter? And three, are there end organ myeloma manifestations, which are Yushuan, Crab, which are C for calcium, R for renal involvement, A for anemia, B for bone. Exactly right. If there's an M spike less than 3 grams per deciliter and without crab, then it's MGUS, and these patients can be monitored. However, it's worth noting that not all MGUS is the same. M protein spikes greater than 1.5 grams per deciliter, non-IgG isotypes such as IgA or IgM, and a free light chain ratio that's less than 0.26 or greater than 1.65 are all risk factors for progression and impact the monitoring plan and diagnostic evaluation at the time of identification. If there is an M-spike with a high clonal plasma load, an M-spike greater than 3 grams per deciliter and clonal plasma cells on bone marrow biopsy greater than 10%, but without crab, then that's smoldering myeloma, which has a higher risk of progression than MGUS, and you need to monitor these patients very, very closely. Now, if there's evidence of an M-spike with crab, then you have multiple myeloma, and it's time to call your friendly oncologist, like me, to start treatment. Heather and Yushuan, one resource I love for the internist is the American Society of Hematology Pocket Guide for MGUS. It's a readily available and accessible three-page PDF that helps summarize MGUS and the appropriate assessment when you identify it in your primary care clinic. Look for the link on www.cardionerds.com on the amyloid topic page. Now that's a pretty simple breakdown of myeloma, but there are several other important variations of plasma cell dyscrasias to keep in mind. First, there's non-secreting or oligosecreting myeloma. Second, there's plasma cytoma. You also have to think about Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia, AL amyloidosis as we're discussing, and then POEMS, which is polyneuropathy, organomegaly, endocrinopathy, M protein and skin changes. Whoa, Heather, we need to send you the ACP Doctor's Dilemma stat. Wow, Heather, that was awesome. I hope you're my resident when you rotate on oncology. Okay, so I'm at the microscope. So your patient's marrow is hypercellular with 15 to 20% lambda restricted plasma cells, but Congo red staining for amyloid is negative. So at the very least, she has smoldering myeloma. I would definitely look for evidence of crab. For her, she still needs bone imaging, either using a skeletal survey, PET, or spinal MRI. With regards to cardiac amyloid, negative Congo red staining on bone marrow aspirate is not sufficient to rule out systemic amyloidosis, so I would keep looking, especially since your pretest probability for AL cardiac amyloid is so high. Wow, Jackie, that was super helpful. Thank you for taking us for a walk down the plasma cell memory lane. I think a whole generation of Ulster interns know how to read a peripheral blood smear only because they had you as their teacher. That's true. And by the way, I also am going to download your resource, okay? Hashtag internist first. So... 
To review, at this point, we have high suspicion for AL cardiac amyloid, while both labs as well as bone marrow show smoldering myeloma. Remember, she has an M-spike of 1.83, which is less than 3, but her bone marrow biopsy did show 10-20% to lambda-restricted plasma cells, which is greater than the 10% cutoff that Jackie mentioned earlier. And yet, the marrow is negative for amyloid deposition. Guys, I don't know about you, but my amyloid antenna are just feeling that nasty protein in the air. However, I'm feeling those mixed messages with the bone marrow being negative for amyloid. Do we or do we not have cardiac amyloid? To be or not to be, that is the question. Dan, have no fear. We can sort through this. There are a few possibilities at this juncture. A, she has smoldering myeloma, and she also has AL cardiac amyloid, and the negative bone marrow, Congo red, is just a false negative. In this case, we just have to get to the heart of the matter, no pun intended, and do that gold standard endomyocardial biopsy. B, she has smoldering myeloma, but the cardiac amyloid that we keep thinking about is actually from a concurrent and unrelated ATTR cardiac amyloid. This would be very bad luck, but we can certainly do a PYP scan to verify. Or C, she has smoldering myeloma, but her heart failure is just half-path NOS from age and hypertension. Now, I believe in Occam's razor. The simplest explanation is often the best. I put my money on option A. There is so much going for AL cardiac amyloid that I think we should just go ahead and get an endomyocardial biopsy. That sounds like a great plan. But what about a fat pad aspirate that's much easier to obtain? You know, Yushin, that is a great point, And I can totally understand trying to avoid a more invasive procedure. Especially since AL amyloid is so pervasive, sampling the fat is definitely worth considering. But the sensitivity is really only 85% for AL, and it's even much lower for ATTR. I will say that gadolinium-enhanced cardiac MRI, hashtag YCMR, can be very helpful here since it helps to find myocardial texture. Specifically, late gadolinium enhancement, or LGE, is a marker of myocyte injury or scar tissue. In normal, healthy muscle, there isn't much space for gadolinium to hang out, and so it quickly washes back out. But in diseased tissue with fibrosis, edema, or a breakdown of natural architecture, there are a number of nooks and crannies for that gad to get stuck in, and so it washes out much slower, and you get late gadolinium enhancement. As with echo strain imaging, different problems give different LGE patterns. Think epicardial enhancement with myocarditis, midwall enhancement with hypertrophied segments in HCM, and subendocardial enhancement in amyloidosis or ischemic infarcts. Of course, an infarct happens when a vessel gets blocked, and so the infarct-related late gadolinium enhancement will have a coronary distribution, like inferolateral for a circumflex STEMI. But since amyloid is diffuse, you can expect diffuse subendocardial LGE. Now, CMR is a powerful technique, and there are newer processes, such as T1 mapping, that give more information and may even hint at AL versus TTR, but that's beyond the scope of this episode. This really is also helpful. So there are a few different ways to proceed from here. At this juncture, our suspicion for AL cardiac amyloid is quite high, albeit with some atypical features like high voltage on EKG. I am getting a cardiac MRI to support our suspicions for cardiac amyloid before proceeding to a right heart cath with endomyocardial biopsy and molecular typing to confirm. My friends, the MRI shows concentric LVH with 
diffuse subendocardial LGE, highly suggestive of cardiac amyloidosis. Perfect. My spidey sense is tingling hard for cardiac amyloidosis. At this point, I definitely feel comfortable in justifying a right heart cath with an endomyocardial biopsy. Remember, things might change in the future, but for now, you never, ever make the diagnosis of AL amyloidosis without pathology. Simply put, you gotta see it to believe it. But let's not waste another moment. Dan, can you take her today? She's all consented, and I made her NPO. <laughs> I'm it. I already have the sheets in. Say no more. Here are hemodynamics. Blood pressure, 120 over 72 millimeters of mercury. Heart rate, 90 beats per minute. Her right atrial pressure is 2 millimeters of mercury. RV is 41 over 5. And PA pressures are 39 over 10 with a mean of 20. Wedge pressure is 10. And her cardiac index came out to 3.43 when we used thermodilution technique. Interpretation, normal. I have no doubt that her cardiac pressures were sky high on presentation, so this really is a testament to excellent heart failure diuretic management by Yushuan. Strong work. The biopsy also went really well. We got some nice meaty samples. Fantastic, Dan. Incredible that you were able to do that so quickly. And wow, Dan, those must have been some great biopsy samples. Pathology already has a report up, so the H&E stain shows an amorphous eosinophilic material diffusely throughout positive for Congo red staining and giving off an apple grain birefringence with polarized light, all consistent with amyloidosis. Mass spec confirms the presence of lambda light chains. My fellow cardio nerds, our clinical suspicion for AL cardiac amyloid is confirmed. Confirmed. Woo! This is all great, but we have to get her to treatment right away. Untreated AL cardiac amyloid has an exceedingly poor prognosis. The revised Mayo staging system uses three factors. Number one, troponin T equal or greater to 0.03 MCGs per liter. Number two, N-terminal pro-BNP equal or greater than 1800 nanograms per liter. And three, serum-free light chain difference greater or equal to 18 milligrams per deciliter. Staging here really correlates to prognosis. Stage one is when you have none of these and the median survival is 55 months. Stage two is when you have one factor elevated. Stage three is having two factors that are elevated. And stage four is when all factors are elevated. As she is stage four, this confers an untreated median survival of just five months. Let's refer her to Jackie ASAP. I would be delighted to take care of her. Multiple myeloma treatment has come a long way, even in the past decade. So there are more options for patients to be treated that are even better tolerated. I'm so glad we have oncologists like Jackie who can partner with us for these challenging cases. Just the other day, I had a patient with advanced AL cardiac amyloid with preserved end organ function and excellent social support. We are working him up for a heart transplant so he can safely get oncologic treatment for his amyloid. The progress in managing cardiac amyloid is not limited to AL amyloid. It's worth reviewing the recent landmark advances in the ATTR cardiac amyloid as well. Conceptually, there are three ways to fight ATTR cardiac amyloid. One, prevent production. Two, stabilize the protein. And three, remove and scavenge that loose amyloid that's floating around. I cannot wait for our Pulse Check with the Experts episodes to get into the exciting details of treating ATTR cardiac amyloidosis. 
And remember, with a diagnosis of mutant ATTR cardiac amyloid, referral for genetic counseling with genetic testing and clinical screening of relatives is essential. And just like with HCM, stroke prevention is a major pillar of management. Because of amyloid infiltration in the atria, not only do you get atrial arrhythmias like atrial fibrillation, you also get atrial systolic dysfunction. Remember Verkau? His triad, HIS, for hypercoagulable state, I for injury and S for stasis. If the blood ain't moving, it's clotting. And since those amyloid atria get so weak, you can get clots even in the absence of atrial fibrillation. So remember, any patient with cardiac amyloidosis and atrial fibrillation should be on anticoagulation regardless of the CHADS VASC. In fact, stroke can actually be the first manifestation of cardiac amyloidosis. I'll never forget the very first patient I ever diagnosed with ATTR cardiac amyloid. He had had a stroke three months prior to coming in with new onset heart failure. My chief resident, Shadi Nakla, taught us the diagnostic algorithm in real time, ending with a floridly positive PYP scan and getting our patient on tefamidus. Shadi's teaching really hammered in the importance of anticoagulation for amyloid patients. Friends, thank you all so much for helping me take great care of our patient. Together, we have clinched the diagnosis of AL cardiac amyloidosis and refer her for life-saving oncologic treatment. To summarize this episode's points of maximal impulse, number one, we have to keep on the lookout for cardiac amyloidosis because it is more common than previously thought. We have newer and more effective treatments, but cardiac amyloidosis is deadly if missed and left untreated. Number two, Build your clinical suspicion on two levels. First, for signs of amyloid gunk in the heart, then for clues of amyloid gunk in the body. Number three, when suspicion for cardiac amyloidosis is high, diagnose the amyloid protein. Start with gammopathy labs, including serum-free light chains and serum-plus urine immunofixation. If these are positive, then get tissue to confirm the presence of AL amyloidosis. Remember, you never diagnose AL amyloidosis without tissue. Number four, if the gammopathy labs are negative, then get a PYP scan. If the scan is positive, it is sufficiently specific to obviate the need for a biopsy. Lastly, number five, after diagnosing AL or ATTR amyloidosis, refer to a specialist right away for treatment. That was amazing. 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 Fantastic discussion, everybody. That's a wrap. So much fun, guys. My butt is hurting. Well, that brings us to the end of our show. So it's time to make like an S2 and split. You can follow us on Twitter at CardioNerds. Don't forget to check out the amazing illustration that Kareem prepared for y'all at www.cardionerds.com and please share what made your heart flutter this week. Send us a clip to cardionerds at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the show, be a nerd and spread the word. And now, a flutter moment. Hello, everyone. My name is Mark from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and I want to let you guys know what makes my heart flutter is teaching medical physiology and being able to share my amazing medical school experience with my friends and family. Interestingly, it will bind strongly to ATTR specifically, kind of like maggots on a wound. Ew. No, that it's gross. Dan, that's All right. pretty gross. <laughs> Is that pretty gross? <laughs> I, <know. laughs> I threw that in earlier. What about kind of like chocolates on strawberry? Chocolate on a strawberry. I can't think about chocolate on a strawberry yeah. after maggots on a wound. Maggots on a wound. <laughs> <laughs> 
Peanut butter on jelly. Oh, that's cute. Because peanut butter is sticky. <laughs> peanut butter jelly time. Peanut butter jelly. Peanut butter jelly. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was so unexpected.